hey, welcome or welcome back to another episode of Podrick the Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Maor Sadra, CEO and co-founder at Incremental. In our third season, we explore the multiverse by interviewing industry friends and thought leaders about hypothetical scenarios that may or may not ever happen in our fast-changing industry. In today's episode, I was delighted to host Matej Novak, CEO and co-founder of Assetario. Matej and I geeked out about the universe where Apple did not go ahead with their privacy moves, i.e. ATT, and one where both Apple and Google decided to cut down on the App Store fees as service to the community. It was awesome speaking with Matej. I hope you'll enjoy listening to our interview. Hello, Matej. Matej or Matej? It's Matej. Hi, Mawar. Okay. By the way, you are the second Matej on this series, FYI. You know the other one. Oh, did you, ha- did you have Matej Lankaric? Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a fellow slog person. The guy, is a, the guy is definitely an influencer. Yeah, yeah. So I think I spoke with him three, four weeks ago. His episode will probably go live before yours, maybe four weeks. He's a lovely guy too. He's a lovely guy. And uh, I always, he's, he actually did something pretty well. Like somebody was tagging people on LinkedIn now with, uh, uh, with some kind of a conference and they tagged Matej Lancharge and he had a little dancer there next to his name. So he was very memorable. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty cool guy. I met him actually like face to face only in PG Connect in London. The one I met you recently as well in. Yeah. Yeah. People like him for speaking. They book him a lot. Really nice guy. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fun to be kind of like, a, in a way, an outsider that you can just share your opinion uh, without any filters on. Um, oh, I, I was laughing so hard. So he's got this newsletter. Uh, uh, something, something, you know, some kind of a weekly newsletter. I forgot the name. And uh, he, he, he can have some pretty, you know, controversial takes. Uh, and I love him for it. I'm sure people really appreciate that. Yeah, I think I, I'm kind of like the same, <laughs> but the only difference is that I have a like a role and a stake. Uh, so on the other hand, I think, again, it's like I've been in the space for like so long that I allow myself to just say whatever the F I want. It's a little tricky. I feel like if you want to be in a B2B, um, it's very important to be, you know, it's you really need to be friends with people. You need to understand them and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a slippery slope i think if you sometimes allow yourself to think oh you know maybe this guy let me just say something rude about him or or her um it's easy to then fall into some kind of a trap and think negative things about people in industry and in the end especially you know if i'm running an early stage startup the only thing that matters is how can i build something that everybody likes and so the most positive way i can have my mindset set up is um Everybody knows what they're talking about and I need to listen and I need to learn from it. Um, otherwise, I'm kind of closing myself off from some insights that might be very important. But uh, yeah, it's always, you know, it's easy to fall into some kind of a trap. And But, you know, we're in the B2B business, so it's uh, it's a little different, right? We need, we want to make sure that everybody, everybody in the industry uses us and we need to make sure we're adjusted accordingly. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, it's uh, like even the companies like that I uh, have strong opinions about, it's never personal. Like I will be friends with the CEOs of companies that I have like relatively known opinions about. But uh, anyway, uh, so uh, Mate, uh, this is the first time you're in our podcast. So uh, please allow yourself to introduce yourself for the audience and go lengthy if you want. 
Yeah, my Mauer, I really appreciate you taking me to this podcast. I love what you guys are doing, by the way. You're incredibly good and, you know, reaching the industry and sharing some uh, great tips and talk, you know, tips about marketing and about mobile games and mobile apps. I love it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm also learning a lot from you. Uh, as you know, when we met, um, I was telling you that I, I'd love to, you know, learn a little bit from how you do outreach and how you engage people. So um, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, my name is Matei. I'm the CEO and uh, one of the co-founders in a business called Assetorio. Uh, the vision that we've got for Assetorio is I would really love to build a business that understands consumers' monetization behavior in the best way possible, right? The kind of uh, industry that or the class of businesses that we're in is uh, machine learning as a service or AI as a service. Um, I always like to say that it's incredible. For example, OpenAI, the guys with ChatGPT, what they have shown is that you can build targeted AI models for a particular use case. And it's, you know, people are going to flock to it if it's good enough. So these guys have said, hey, we're going to build a really good summarizing engine or another use case. We're going to build, build a really good question and answering engine. And they have packaged it into a nice front end. And now people are like, whoa, I mean, it actually makes sense to use them and, and use their models and build use cases on top of it. Uh, they're in the B2C space, which of course is a little different, but I would love to build the, you know, the business in B2B uh, AI. And the way we're going around it is exactly monetization. So um, to be very specific about the use cases that we're supporting is we're, we're, we're partnering up with mobile apps and mobile games uh, where we have three specific use cases that uh, we have machine learning for. Uh, the first use case is... Um, in forecasting. So that use case is how can we have the best revenue forecasting model uh, on a user level for mobile apps, right? So what that means is you have a user in your app, how can we give you the best predictions that say, hey, this user will spend $7 in the next seven days. And this user will spend $1 in the next 180 days. And this user will spend nothing ever. Um, and then we build automations on top of it so that it's as easy to use as possible. So there's a marketing use case, right, where we have dashboards which aggregate all of these predictions and they tell you, hey, users coming from this Google campaign are going to be performing really well with a 50%, you know, predicted ROAS by day 90, which, you know, may or may not be good. Or we've got DSP partnerships where, you know, we can uh, automatically pipe these into Liftoff, for example. And then if you have a Liftoff campaign, they are able to adjust our PLTVs predictive lifetime value predictions, and you get better performance out of nowhere. <clears throat> and then we have two personalization use cases uh, where we build recommendation engines. The first use case is what we call uh, contextual pricing. And that's just incredibly well done um, country pricing or location pricing engine, right? So if you, you know, recently there were articles saying that Netflix was adjusting prices for all of their subscription um, clients uh, in every single country. So they would have maybe a $7 price in Czech Republic. They would have an $8 price in um, Slovakia. They would have a $5 price in India and a 12 in the US. And we want to make sure that every app in the world can integrate our solution where they say, hey, what should today be the right price that I have in India? And we're able to adjust for the app's uh, you know, unique economics and all the micro and macro economic things that are happening there. And you just have the best solution out there. Um, and then number three is a full-on recommendation engine for mobile apps where you're able to sync your offer inventory with us. You can say, hey, I have a $10 offer, which gives this inventory. And I have a $10 offer, which gives another inventory. And I have a $20 offer, which gives, you know, another inventory again. And then we're able to, you know, we sync up with your CRM. Our models understand what a user goes through. 
And then we can say, hey, this user would really like this $10 offer and, or another user would like a $20 offer. And so all of these things, the KPI that we've got there is uh, just how much can we improve LTV or revenue per user. And um, I really would love to strive to build a business where if you have our personalization or forecasting models integrated into your app and we're you know running some kind of monetization use case for you, the app should feel much better, right? It should feel like, hey, a user in India does not complain that there's a $50 offer if it's their entire monthly salary, right? That makes like no sense. Or, you know, if I'm a purchaser in Diablo Immortal, um, I hate $100 offers, but I'll buy a $10 offer all the time. So it's it's about making sure that we really, you know, give every user what they want. This is a thing in e-commerce. It's just that nobody has been able to scale it in mobile apps yet uh, because mobile apps are so much more diverse than just, you know, any shop. And I'm very passionate about it. I started the business with my co-founder out of MIT. We're both data scientists. Um, we've got a you know, a bunch of machine learning, like really, really good ML guys uh, working in our team. We're, um, you know, 30 people right now in the business, and I hope that we're going to be able to scale it. And everybody in the industry uses our, you know, targeted use cases when they have a need for it. And how did you get to it, by the way? So again, you didn't come from like a decade in mobile gaming advertising, right? All right. No. You did. No. So my background is... Um, I, I was always interested in business, but I was studying computer science and data science. I really enjoyed studying maths, you know, and, and computer science, all this theoretical stuff, although I enjoyed working in business. So I worked for Accenture and McKinsey previously, and then I worked as a software engineer briefly for a gaming business uh, where I was in cloud engineering, and that kind of got me into the industry. My co-founder, Jacob, um, he did his full undergrad in computer science at MIT. Brilliant guy. We're, we're, we're really good friends. You know, it's a pleasure to work with him. Um, he, uh, at MIT, he used to work for um, a uh, for Booking.com, where, apologies, for Expedia, where he was in their recommendation engine team. So, you know, he was in Geneva, one of the machine learning guys, making sure that when, you know, when you search for a hotel, uh, they give you the right one, or when you search for flights, they give you the right one. And he saw firsthand how much, you know, it can increase the bottom line user experience, right? And so we thought, you know, we're both gamers, right? He played a lot of games. We still play a lot of games. I used to work for a gaming company and we thought, damn, let's build a recommendation engine for mobile games. And then we went from there and then we expanded, right? Like let's build a machine learning as a, as a service business for mobile apps. But it really is a recommendation engine for mobile games. That's how it started. And when did you start the company, by the way? We started the business uh, in 2020. Um, yes, so we had our first pilot in January, 2020. And now that's when we were still students. So we had a couple months of weekend work uh, when we were students. We had a lovely, you know, nice big publisher with a couple, you know, like a couple tens of millions of revenue, give us the chance to integrate and we went from there. So interesting that you also started in 2020, Incremental also started in 2020. And I'm gonna kind of like segue us to the first question. So while you were working on the company, while you were working on the product in 2020, something happened, um, WWDC um, on June 30th, I wanna say, something like that. But anyway, Apple announced ATT, privacy. And that was pretty big. And I'm assuming it was also pretty big for you guys, and you must have spent that uh, next few days trying to understand what's going to happen. But rather than go into what did happen, let's go for our theme, which is all about hypotheticals. What if that never happened? What if ATT never happened? 
It's quite interesting, right? Like we can just, I know you said, but let's take a quick step back in what ATT means, right? Just very briefly, what you could do or what, let's just focus on the Apple side, right? So Apple used to, if you had an app on, uh, on, on an iPhone and a user came to your app and they started, you know, using it, Apple basically allowed you to get their unique identifier. So, you know, my iPhone, I'll be identified as, you know, this is Matei from this iPhone. And every single app on the, on the iPhone would have the same identifier of me. And what that means is that, you know, you would basically be able to track the user. It was the strongest use case there, as far as I understand, was in uh, performance marketing, right? So Facebook would know, hey, I showed an ad to Matei. And then a game would know, hey, Matei just started using my app it seems like my ads on Facebook worked. And so this, you know, it enabled really good attribution. Uh, just very quickly, Maura, what the, were there other use cases that people are doing with IDFA or, because mm. people only talk about the performance marketing side, but it just mm. kind of, you know, made me think like, what else were people doing? Interesting. Uh, I think we don't know. Um, well, the, for sure there would be companies enhancing this like data into uh, data collections in order to, again, sell this data to whoever wants to buy relevant data for targeting, segmentation, analytics, and so on. So obviously, I think there would be use cases, but let's remind ourselves the um, IDFA is identifier for advertising. That's the nature of it. Before IDFA, if you go 2010, I want to say, you had a UDID. UDID was Unique Device Identifier. This was an unchangeable um, identifier that was almost as close to IMEI, like it's a absolute identifier of your device. Um, IDFA, you could reset as a user. And again, the main use case for IDFA was advertising. And they deprecated that unique identifier? Yeah, yeah, a while, while, while ago. Ah, okay, because so I have heard of some kind of analytics business, I won't be naming, where they said, hey, why don't we like, you know, have a bunch of contracts uh, they were an analytics business, have a bunch of contracts with our publishers and say, hey, if we pull our IDFAs together, then uh, you can say, hey, has somebody, you know, this user, let's say, let's say that, you know, gaming company one and gaming company two pulled their IDFAs together through this one analytics provider. And then they can say, hey, how much did this user spend on your other apps? So, uh, you know, they would no, be able there's... to say, hey, I've seen this, I haven't seen this user in my apps, but I know that they are a high spender or I know that they are a low spender. No, and sure, I think yeah, Apple yeah. shut that down really quickly. So yeah, the fact that IDFA... Space. Yeah, yeah. like uh, Lotomy, for example, it's a DMP, data management platform. They buy data from WebMD and they also buy data from websites owners and app publishers and so on, trying to stitch this together into this is what I know about this user. So I think one of the things about if ATT never happened is in general, like as we're exactly talking about, as we're talking about here, like about these use cases, you can go down a pretty brutal like privacy rabbit hole, right? Um, where, you know, like it's Apple really pushed it as, as their own privacy changes. And it's true, right? ATT made not only did ATT really, you know, not make it possible to identify a user anymore based on, whatever they do in outside of your app. Um, but it's, it really, you know, it, the, it caused a pretty seismic shift in the industry, right? Because attribution as you knew it, the working, generally speaking. And uh, 
you know, a lot of people started writing articles about privacy, like privacy, privacy, privacy. Apple made a big branding campaign about that. So I think if Apple didn't make these steps, then, and it seems like Google was just following, then you would probably get just, you know, get into a pretty dystopian world where, you know, you as a consumer are supremely tracked everywhere, right? It seems like you, you know, like Apple would, if Apple didn't stop it somewhere, then, you know, within 10 years, you would have a point where, hey, it seems like you went on a WebMD and then, you know, it seems like you have cancer. Why don't you try these pills? And privacy would be, you know, this, this very intrusive kind of tracking would not be stopped. I think Apple did a great job, but I, I would most worry about the societal impact, right? Where it would create a pretty dystopian future. future. How did it affect the Asetarium? It's obviously in our industry, it had an, another effect, right? So, so um, you know, I, I, I would worry about the societal things, but in, in our industry, right? So on our predictive LTV product, we work with user acquisition managers who want to know how their per campaigns are performing, right? So on the attribution side, when you have every single user attributed, hey, this user came from this campaign and this user came from this creative, it's super easy to just list them. And then we make user level LTV forecasts then we're, our dashboards are able to be incredibly accurate, right? Like we know all these users, where they came from, and we make a prediction. The way it impacted us is um, in the same way that it impacted user acquisition managers, right? Like we connect to their CRM data or their analytics data, and then we connect our AI model to make predictions on top of it. But um, that means that, you know, if the baseline data has been cut or made, um, you know, has been limited a little bit, then, um, then, you know, the predictions are limited in the same way. Um, or, you know, your starting point is limited. So what that means is that, for example, now when we do iOS, uh, you know, a campaign evaluation, um, we have to rely on just, let's say, the 10% that are opted in, right? So when on our dashboards, the client sees, hey, this campaign from Google seems to be performing well on iOS, that in fact is a prediction based on only the opted in users. Um, right now, so, 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 you know, you have slightly less, uh, you need to give it more time to make sure that you have a good, good enough uh, predictive accuracy because you have 10x fewer users. So maybe you need twice as many days to have a good enough prediction. Like instead of a day three to day 30 prediction being very accurate, you maybe have to wait for day seven. Um, <clears throat> but it also created a pretty big opportunity, right? I think Singular was incredible in this. They, it seems like their MMP business just like made a leap forward because they were really on top of their, um, you know, SKAD network education and marketing efforts, uh, incredible job. And so this was something that we tried to, you know, do as well. Uh, so we just released a blog post about, you know, managing your conversion values. And so we're thinking, hey, what if we could make predictions on top of conversion values, right? So you used to have a day one for the conversion value. The conversion value is, hey, this user is in the three out of eight spending bucket, and they went through these many milestones. Can, our, can we build an ML model? That's, you know, one ML model normally is based on, hey, this user played 17 times, they logged in 17 times, they bought a little purchase, they watched the rewarded ad, they like went through five levels, they seem to love the game, therefore they're going to be a big spender. And on, you know, with SK Ad Network, it says, hey, they have this conversion value, what does that say about their future spending? So, you know, we're really trying to make sure that we can handle that use case as well, but it has certainly, you know, limited the impact that we can have in exactly the same way that it has in, in literally one-to-one -one way that it has limited just normal performance marketing managers trying to evaluate their campaigns. But, but then if I understood correctly, 
So there is the first-party data, okay? Let's say you're working with a gaming company. There is their first-party data, yes. which is all the users. And then there is the attributed data, which is currently on iOS, a small part yes. of the user. Let's say the 10%. Um, you're able to, to build the LTV prediction both on the total and the 10%, right? Yes, that's right. So we train the models on every single user, right? But um, still, if you basically, right, if you... If you're making a prediction on a kind of a campaign and the predictions you can only make on the attribute users, you can have a really good model that is trained on all of your data. However, you know, it, you need to make sure that that 10% of your of the user base is representative enough of the campaign. And so if you have a small campaign with a relatively small budget and you only get, you know, 10 spenders per day on that campaign, then you know, and only one of them is attributed, then it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to make a good prediction on one spender, but it would be, you know, ish workable on 10 spenders. So, so you, you know, the sample size does show there. And then let's, let's ask a different question. The 10% that opts in, are they a good representation of the hundred percent? Oh, that's a good, or... yes. That's a, that's a very good question. We, Obviously, we work with all our clients. They ask this question. Hey, they ask this question. They're like, "Hey, you make a prediction on this campaign, but it's only opt-in users. Um, but what if they're different, right? Like, what if opt-in users are a little bit less knowledgeable about their privacy, and maybe they're lower spenders, right? So we always make an analysis for our clients. We just say, "Hey, by the way, the opt-in users, not opt-in users. This is the average LTV uh, cur curve. And then, you know, worst case, what we do is we say, "Hey." It seems like the opt-in users on average spend 20% less than the, you know, than the users that are anonymized. So just, you know, add this uh, constant whenever you look at our predictions. And now, now you're getting me well. curious, by the way, is there a pattern like uh, opt-in versus not opt-in across, let's say, all companies working with you without sharing too much? Um, good question. So generally speaking, when we're, when we're making these, we're looking at this analysis uh, fairly recently. Uh, the day one, there was no statistical difference that we could see on day one. Um, and that's, I would need to get back to you on the, I don't have the numbers on, on the day 30. I would need to ask my product manager. Okay. But again, if you're- I, Apple, I don't want to say something BS, right? Like no, I, no, no, I it's it, fine. I have it fixed in my head that uh, opt-in users, uh, you know, that say, hey, yes, you can track me, spend a little less. Uh, but I- I would rather not dump a number, but I know that when we looked at our clients, the day one numbers were insignificantly different. So um, that was interesting, but you should really look at day 30. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, interesting. Um, let's see. So again, if uh, let's go for the crazy hypothetical. What if Apple tomorrow says, you know what? We made a mistake. We're going to revoke ATT and just here you go. IDFAs are fully available to everybody. Is that a very good thing? Good thing? Or at this point you say, ah, it doesn't matter. I look I, just in our business, it would be lovely, right? It would be amazing. You could do attribution again. Man, imagine you're a performance marketer and you spend a 50 million a year budget and you're like, I don't know how it's performing. I mean, that's mad. That's honestly just, you know, like, and I say mad, that's how people used to do it. You know, like when, I don't know, Tesla has a, or okay, let's say, Gen, uh, Mercedes has a billion dollar marketing budget and they dump it all into TV ads, right? Or banner ads, like on the, on highways. Uh, they literally have exactly zero idea how that's performing. So when I was a consultant at McKinsey, uh, one of our projects was uh, we partnered up with uh, eBay uh, in Europe 
And uh, they were asking us, hey, how can we like rebalance our marketing budget so that we can reduce basically they wanted to re reduce their marketing budget and so we would say hey from based on a survey in germany if you put one dollar into radio you get this much reach and if you put one dollar into tv you get this much reach and so that's how we were like you know it's 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 honestly just you 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 don't know anything it's uh it's pretty wild and people spend billion dollar budgets on it but uh i thought performance marketing you know should be performance marketing is how it should be so it's um yeah, it would definitely make performance marketing better. But again, I would be worrying about the black hole a little bit. I think Apple could definitely get, put some guard, guard, guardrails in there. I don't think there's anything wrong with just knowing, hey, this user came from this Facebook campaign. I literally don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, Apple should, what kind of a privacy issue is that? If Apple is really worried about just privacy in general and user level spying, they could just build their own MMP, right? And then they would just give you like really accurate campaign level predictions sorry, campaign level attributions in the same way that SK ad is trying to sell you like, Hey, these users came from, you know, this campaign. Uh, well, they don't give you user IDs, but they tell you, you know, how the campaign is performing. And I think it's a little criminal that they don't, I mean, they could just build their own MMP. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Um, there is, I mean, I honestly don't think there's any privacy issues with just understanding how your campaigns are performing. There's obviously privacy issues in having user level identifiers on the phone. I get it, right? If you don't want to go down that slippery slope and you don't want to track people, fair point. I myself feel better when I'm not tracked, for sure, right? Um, but yeah, we would, but you know, like high level, what that would mean in the end, not much, right? This is an industry which uh, is going towards perfect competition where, you know, the moment some kind of a variable changes, sure, for the next three months, you might have abnormal profits, right? CPIs, or sorry, your CPIs would, um, or you're going to be able to attract a niche audience again for your app, right? You would basically have higher LTVs because you get the right users, uh, but then competition would take it down again. So you would, there's no way that publishers can for the long term sustain any kind of abnormal profits because when they do, more publishers are going to come in, more VC funding is going to come in. That's basically mobile gaming in the last 10 years, right? People are making a bunch of money. Everybody came into mobile apps. Everybody started doing performance marketing. CPIs increased, you know, multiple X over the course of whatever, some kind of years, and we're back to where we started. So it's, um, in the end, nobody would make more or less money but um, people but I definitely tell you, feel I can better. tell you a couple of things, or at least challenge a, a few of the things you uh, you said. So let's start maybe with uh, one of the biggest well-known gaming companies in the world. Once a year, would do an incrementality test, the old, old school way, which means they would cut marketing spend to zero for their number one title. This is one of the most like, see, like most known brands in the world. They would just cut marketing for a month. And then after a month, it would restart Facebook and a week later, Google and a week later, a DSP. And you know what they used to do? Every year, they managed to cut down 50% of their ad spend because they found out that even though they had user level attribution, most of it was overly attributing users that would they would have gotten for free. Now, the point, by the way, SKA Network, I agree with you. It's kind of like, actually, SKA Network, maybe uh, uh, 2.0 sucked, 3.0 sucked, 4.0 is getting there. I'm pretty sure that by SK Ed Network 10.0, it's going to be the equivalent of what people expect attribution would do. So campaign level, no user level granularity. Um, but I actually think that's like just knowing that you, Matei, clicked on an ad on Facebook, is that why you bought the Mercedes? 
Is that why you bought this shoe? Is that why you downloaded this app? The single ad view? I get it. I get what you're trying to say. It's as good as it is though, right? Like that's as good as it gets. And except for obviously, I think incrementality makes a lot of sense, but it's very hard to get right, statistically speaking. Um, there is, it's also a little tricky, right? Like generally speaking, most mobile games or mobile apps are fully dependent on performance marketing to get to scale, right? Like, or rather all of our customers are fully performance marketing dependent. Um, what that means is, I mean, if you look at the example of the top apps, right? Like you go to the top 20 apps, top 30, even top 50 grossing apps in the app store, every single one of them you have heard about. Like there's no way you can build an app that has 500 million in revenue or even probably 200 million in revenue. And like, or rather any app that has hundreds of millions of revenue, everybody knows about it. Kids in school talk about it, you know, organically. So these kinds of apps, like if you're a Candy Crush, you don't need to do performance marketing. Everybody knows about you, right? So then you just do a little bit of brand, right? You, you make sure that your brand is fun and people have a nice feeling associated to it. So these guys, it's a little different. But if you have an app that makes 2 million a month uh, or 1 million a month, it is all performance marketing. And, you know, I don't think, you know, if you attribution is the best way to go around it. Um, if you could do full attribution, I think that's a good enough, you know, understanding. But if you're a Candy Crush, uh, then you can totally play around with incrementality because you have a crazy organic pressure, right? And just because a you know user sees an ad on Facebook, they download Candy Crush, but they would have probably downloaded anyways. So by the way, so two things I want to say: the example I shared with you earlier that was Candy Crush, and B. Candy Crush used to spend a million a day on performance marketing, and they still would do it once a year, cut down marketing, realize that 50% of their ad spend is like redundant. And they were not yeah. the first one and not the only one. It was uh, Airbnb during the pandemic. They cut $650 million of performance marketing. And guess what? They found out that that $650 million was redundant. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is uh, that is wild. Yeah. And not the first and not the last. Usually we only hear about the ones that made it public by suing the life out of like multiple ad networks for what we <laughs> call fraud. But in reality, it's just, you know, attribution doing its job. But attribution isn't, again, the fact that you clicked an ad on Facebook and bought a Mercedes car is not because you clicked the ad. There is a way bigger funnel there. But I, I would honestly think intuitively that this is the case if you're talking about the biggest brands in the world that, you know, people know about, right? But like, you know, that have a brand. But if you're literally talking about an app that makes a million a month uh, globally, so it's not like a million a month in a particular country, then uh, it really is all performance marketing, right? Like I wouldn't download that app unless I saw an app for it. Is, no, that, no, sure. is that what you... Like, do you agree with me there? Like, am I thinking about I, I agree and actually think that, you know, there is no organics, at least not at the start. And even when you get to the point of having a lot of organics, it's because you did a ton of marketing earlier in time. But the point is that, like, uh, if you take an average app that works with a couple of channels, for them to know where am I actually getting the customers from and is this the single touch point, that's unreasonable because most users don't see a single ad, click it, convert, become an LTV of a thousand bucks. 
yeah. there is a funnel. There is a funnel there. That's what I'm saying. And attribution has always been part of the picture. It's a very, very good proxy, especially if you're doing like a million dollars in ad spend, for example, you want to get certain proxies to tell you, am I pointing in the right direction? But yes. to go from there to saying that uh, um, like attribution uh, is the ultimate answer, I would challenge that. Huh. Okay. I'll I'll have to think about it a little more. I mean, obviously, you are the expert here, right? I just work with... Uh, well, we are both experts. You know, it's fine. We, people that give me data from attribution. Yeah, we bring different sides of the same picture, I would say. That's fine. But I think about A-B tests a lot, right? Like you guys are trying to A-B test UA. When we do our our personalization use cases, we think about A-B testing a lot. Like what if this is a user that I treat, this is a user that I don't treat. And every now and then, right? Like if uh, we have some kind of a new machine learning model, and um, we need like the most rough way to A-B test it. We're like, hey, we're gonna turn off models for the next week, like literally everything and see how that performs. So I, I understand where you're coming from. I don't have the exact A-B testing, you know, and incrementality actually, testing in UA mapped testing. out. By the way, we don't do A-B testing at all. I know, but it's incrementality is, the way I think about it is you're trying to do A-B testing, uh, but on UA. Like it's, it's you're like, hey, I'll turn off this Facebook campaign. How did it change my product? And there's a lot more variables to it, but... We don't do that, but we can talk about our technology <laughs> in another time, by the way. I'll explain our technology to you. We don't do A-B testing. We don't do GeoLeaf testing. We don't do experiments at all. You will well, actually, you will get our technology or our methodology, by the way, because you study this. But okay, se okay. separate conversation. I, am, I, I, will, I need to, I need, I, I'm keen to learn it. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Uh, let's jump to the next question. Okay, so... Um, Another hypothetical. What if Apple and Google decides, you know what, we're going to cut the App Store fees, tax, whatever you want to call it, to 10% starting tomorrow morning? It's a, That's a good one, right? Uh, very interesting. You know, we were already talking earlier a little bit about competitive pressures, right? If just very high level, the first thing that would happen is, uh, hey, everybody would make more profit, right? Like right now, you need to make sure that if you pay a dollar in CPI, uh, then you need to get dollar forty or dollar thirty-five uh, in uh, LTV for you to be break-even because you pay those thirty-five cents out of you know one dollar thirty-five uh, to Google uh, or you know ish something like that. Uh, so all of a sudden, you know, you would only pay ten cents and you would make you, they would probably like triple your profits. But that would only triple your profits for the next week. Until everybody is like, oh boy, I can increase my bidding, right? Like uh, I've been bidding one dollar, now I'm bidding, you know, dollar twenty. Uh, voila. So I think what would happen is you probably it's interesting. You probably know this a little bit better, but uh, or you probably have an, have some kind of a data about that as well. But if you increase LTV of a game uh, by twenty percent, you can generally speaking easily increase its revenue by fifty percent uh, because you just you can dump a lot more money into marketing. Like maybe you can even double the revenue by increasing LTV by 20%. So everyone's revenues would grow a lot. Uh, profits would increase a little bit, but in the end, like people just outbid their CPIs. So CPIs in general as an industry would go up. So, you know, ad networks would make more money. Publishers would have higher revenues, marginally bigger profits. But, you know, within a month, it would be literally the same thing. Like everything would equilib equilibrate. Um, I think the only... It's a little crazy. Isn't it a little crazy though that Apple, I mean, what a great business. These guys, there's so many, there's like millions of people working for mobile application businesses, right? Whether that is mobile games or that is Netflix, right? Like millions of people. Netflix is a business with 
tens of billions of dollars in market cap. Pretty sure they had a, over 100 billion market cap or Facebook. Facebook is a freaking app, right? And they have they had a trillion dollar market cap. And Apple is so baller that they can say, I'll take 30% from all of these millions of people, everything they work on. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, uh, I mean, that's the best business of all time. Like the freaking federal government in the US would really struggle. Like they, there's fights about it, like a yeah. 30% income tax and they pay for your roads. Apple just lets you publish an app. It's, it, I mean, if you step back, I never These thought guys, about it like what that. What a great business. I never thought about it like that. You know, companies indeed, sometimes, you know, you hear about, about this in the news often, like on uh, corporate tax, what uh, like what this uh, yeah. mega corporation pays. On the other hand, everybody pretty much pays the fees. And that's the thing about uh, a platform risk. You have no platform risk when you are the platform. <laughs> that's that's for sure. I mean, I mean, come on, like, you say you pay 30% taxes in the US and they like educate your kids, right? And they've, you know, you can go to a hospital <laughs> and Apple is like, hey, we might reject your app update. <laughs> what do you think the likelihood of this scenario happening? Like Apple and Google decide um, we're going to lower it. Look, I, 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 I like to read, uh, you know, the news, I mean, like, you know, the information or the economist. And obviously I think what people think based on what I can recap is um, the only reason Apple would do it. They don't They don't have any reason to do it, right? Because there's no, in, for example, in the US, there's no other app store. App, Apple has, you know, forbidden other app stores. So there's absolutely zero actual competitive pressure for them to do it. Even if Google Play Store would reduce their app, uh, Google Play Store is their biggest competitor, right? If they would reduce their uh, fee to just 10%, that's no reason why. I would switch to an Android, right? Like I wouldn't switch to an Android because, you know, you know, IAPs are 15% cheaper. Like, sure, that's nice, but that's not the killer MVP. Um, sorry, the killer USP. Um, but they would only do it if there is some kind of regulatory pressure, right? So, um, you know, the European, European Union would say, hey, if you... Or rather, it's causing so much contention that all of these apps are funding some lobbying groups that are you know going to start threatening Apple with you know having to allow some side loading and third-party app stores, and then Apple would probably have to cut it down to ten percent to preserve their monopoly there. But it would be—I mean—it would only be political, uh, I would say. You know, even when uh, like Epic with Fortnite back then, the most popular like hyped-out game when they decided to essentially go into war against the fees. Yeah. Because what's not fair, obviously, is that, you know, some companies don't pay the fees. Netflix, Spotify. Spotify has never, has always acted in the, like in kind of like this pirate way of saying, no, web store, we don't like care about yes. the policies and so on. We do this. You want to ban us, ban us. But they're like, we're taking the risk. Okay. Um, Netflix, on the other hand, got this like exempt Okay, they They're exempt, fees. really? Yeah, yeah. If you subscribe to Netflix using your app, you don't. They don't charge the thirty percent. And obviously, Facebook doesn't pay anything to Apple either, right? Because Facebook has their own. You know, they have the app and they have user data, and then they sell it for ads. But um, yeah, that it's 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 you know it's it's not as uh, clear cut as I said. Um, but what was I going to say? One of the things. I mean, by the way, this thing would disproportionately, however, help anybody with organic, right? Like if you're a candy crush and you don't have to spend that much on performance marketing, you know, relatively speaking to your revenues, you would literally just get 
higher revenue coming in and it wouldn't impact your cost, right? Because yeah, sure, CPIs would rise a little bit as people compete, but if that isn't a meaningful, you know, as much of your cost as, you know, any app that is 100% performance marketing based, um, it would definitely disproportionately help the big, big organic strong brands. Um, so maybe it would even like attract some, you know, maybe it would even attract Netflix or Spotify to say, hey, 10%, we can deal with that if if it you know maybe spotify would say hey if we have people pay for spotify through the app flow right and it increases conversion by 20 percent, then they're like hey we'll pay the 10 percent." but if it's a 30 percent tax then there is no way that increases conversion by 40 50 percent by the way i have a like a crazy question that i usually don't ask people because no one wants to answer that but <laughs> if you go for the other extreme and you know apple says you know what there is no app store fees but if you want to get your app published, it's uh, one million a year. That's very interesting. Is there an example of this in the real world? You want to have something mm. published? The only thing, again, the only equivalent I... I think is real estate. Like, I don't know, you want to get a shop in Fifth Avenue, New York, which you're, you know yes. is going to generate a tons of sales, no problem, but this is the rent and this is the city tax, which is crazy oh, expensive. Point. Okay. And the same I... the same store can be in, I don't know, um, Jacksonville, the same store, same workers, same employees, yeah. same merchandise generates a thousand percent less sales. Um, That's interesting. That's very interesting. So Apple, if they would do that, if they would do that. So, oh, what if Apple had like these taxi medallions or whatever, what, however you pronounce that? Yeah, word, that's right? that, exactly. Like in that's New York, word. like there's only a hundred spots that we have on this app store and you can bid, you can have an auction. Uh, Apple will take 30% of that auction. It will be an NFT. Okay, whatever. But um, it's, by the way, like million, bunch of money. But then in order to build a mobile game, like these people raise $6 million seats anyways. Uh, so it would just, it would literally just be a cost of doing business for a startup. But what it would mean is uh, you wouldn't be able to experiment with anything, right? Like um, if, if, if you, for example, you know, want to have a proper app, you need to pay a million bucks up front. What that would mean is that it would seriously probably mon or, you know, oligopolize um, all these app publishers. There will be no more new competition coming in because, you know, or even if you are want to raise a, a $6 million for your seed round as an app, publishing business or a gaming business, you still need some kind of KPIs and blah, 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 uh, that show, hey, this game works. So it would probably kill, that would definitely kill anybody independence. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure somebody like, you know, the biggest publishers would be very happy about that. Yeah, I agree. Um, cool. Uh, so Matej, thank you very much for your time. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I like, by the way, sometimes conversations become not controversial, but like we don't have to agree on everything. And obviously we see different sides of the industry. So it's like, that's, that's completely fine. That makes sense. But I'm going to cut everything out. Just kidding. <laughs> everything <laughs> is out. This is bullshit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I'm going to put a disclaimer. Everything said, Matej said is bullshit. Don't believe whatever he says. <laughs> I'm definitely, definitely cut me out if I don't know what incremental marketing is. So 100%. No, it's fine. Cut me we'll, out have there. we'll have a call and I'll introduce what, uh, what our company does. It's fine that you don't like know. Again, to be fair, before starting like incremental, my idea of incrementality was the same, was thinking A, B testing, and it's not? testing. No. I swear, man, I need to read up on this. Apologies. 
I'll, I will schedule time. I'll show you the platform. No problem. <laughs> Thank good. you. Thank you. Cool. You can please uh, cut that out. No, and no, by the way, this not. was really fun. I really, Mar, I this was really fun. I really appreciate you. You know, I really appreciate this conversation. It was fun. You have fun questions. You have a nice format. Uh, it's a great way to, you know, I am now re-energized for the rest of this week, to be honest. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of the week. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.